0: What do you know about the fall of communism in the late 1980s? What were the experiences of people in countries like Romania? What is it like to live in revolutionary times? As you ponder these questions, think about how you might talk to and expose young adults to the realities of that time and other hard truths. What role might folklore, magic, kindness, bravery and belief in our own voices play in telling such stories for young people.
1: To write for kids is, is just a monumental task because you have to make it understandable, but you can't talk down to them because kids can smell that a mile away and they're done. Mm -hmm. Um, So I do think it gave me a sense of really how to tell a story and what a beautiful story should have in it. I feel like there was always something I've always loved in books I can read quite sad books, as long as there's some kind of human kindness. And Newberries often have terrible situations, but usually there's somebody who is kind or somebody who is brave. And, and that's what makes me want to keep going in the world, frankly, is that we do have the capacity to be like that to each other when we choose to.
0: Today, a conversation about Jay Casper Kramer's young adult novel, The Story That Cannot Be Told, a magical, mythical, and at times difficult examination of Romania in 1989. In all its complexity, it is a masterful novel of historical fiction that opens ethical and moral questions about war, politics, family, friendship, community, resistance, and revolution, all told through the eyes of one little girl, Iliana. I'm Peyton, and this is the Rhizomatic Reader, a podcast designed to bring people and books into conversation across space and time. Today's guest is Christine Thomas Alderman. This is the first Rhizomatic guest episode. Christine was suggested as a guest for the podcast by Alan Thomas, who appeared on episode R2. But I also know Christine through book clubs here in Houston and as a dear friend. She is a writer, mother, and avid reader of young adult books, so it was a joyous opportunity to talk with her about this book. We recorded this conversation in January of 2021. about your reading life growing up I don't know that we've ever talked about it I mean I don't think we have
1: yeah so I my earliest memory of reading is a story that's told about me if that makes sense so I guess it's not really my memory but Mm -hmm. apparently my sister my oldest sister there's four of us and my oldest sister's eight years older so she really took care of me all the time she would take us to the library and it will probably not surprise you knowing me that I insisted on picking my own books. Like nobody else could pick for me. And I guess the library, well, you know, it's alphabetical. So I could only reach the Zs. So apparently there was this long period of my childhood where all I read were Charlotte Zolotow books because that was what I could reach. And I kind of think it's funny that I feel like I developed my own personality once I had been told the story, but it really fit with who I am now too. I'm like, I don't want to read that. I'm not going to read it. Like I'm very, (laughs) right, I'm very picky. But um. And then my dad, I very distinctly remember, I was four years old probably. And my dad would read the Chronicles of Narnia to my older siblings. And I would get to lay there and listen, even though it was terrifying um, for me, but it was just the sound of his voice was so comforting. Um, And so fast forward a bit, when I read the books to my third graders when I was teaching, it was the most beautiful experience because I could actually still hear my dad reading certain passages. Like I would read them and be like, oh, I remember when he read that to me. Anyway, it was just Mm -hmm. a really nice Mm -hmm. full circle kind of thing. And then when I was 11, and this actually connects to why I picked this particular book to talk about, we went to the former Soviet Union for two years and I was homeschooled. But my curriculum was picked. I don't think I've ever told you this. My curriculum was actually picked by a child development specialist who worked for the mission group. And so she is probably part of what got me started writing as well. It was a very writing intensive curriculum, but she also picked, I want to say the first, I don't remember how many, let's say 15, the first 15 Newberry books, like starting from way back, like in the thirties. So Mm. when we got, when we got there, um, and I'm probably getting that date wrong, but like the really early ones, like, and then the ones, some of them are considered classics, like R- the witch of Blackbird pond, young foo Vipper Yangtze, um, ones that probably, well, actually I've been rereading them. Some of them actually hold up, but some of them are kind of problematic now to say the least. Um, but while we were there, we didn't know that there wouldn't be access to other books.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that was almost all I had to read. So I would like tell myself I could have one chapter a day uh, and then I would have to like wait till the next day for the next chapter, which was so painful because I was a kid who um, before we left for overseas, my mom jokes that she would say, well, she jokes, but she's serious. She'd be like, you can only have 17 books from the public library this week. And we'd be like, can't we have 18? She like, no, 17. And like, she kind of messed with our minds, but she got us to read a lot. So in our house, that's just what adults did. Like they read, my parents read, we read, I didn't understand until I got out into the big, big world that other people didn't read. Like I just I just thought people did. Um
0: You all went to the former Soviet Union. Where exactly were you?
1: Okay. So we were in Kazakhstan. Okay. But when we we were there from ninety to ninety-two for two school years. So and we left in the summer. So when we got there, it was the Kazakh SSR. Uh-huh. And then it became the independent Republic of Kazakhstan. And then it became Kazakhstan all in that two-year period. Uh-huh. So it gained its full independence. So we were there the day the American embassy opened and we saw the American flag get raised. And that was a whole thing. Anyway, so it was a very difficult slash interesting, tumultuous time that we were there.
0: So we were so still there. were there in 90 to 92. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, now I also want to ask you about this stuff related to your father leading to you all when you were children. So this was something, was it just your father? Was it your father and mother?
1: So I, my mom must've read to us and she'd probably be horrified to know. I don't remember. I think my dad worked in New York city at the time when we were very young. Uh And so that was probably, the time we had with dad right was the reading time right before bed so
0: he read to you long long distance
1: No, no no i'm sorry we were in new jersey we lived in new jersey so he would commute every day to new york city and he would come home exhausted um and but he would read to us and that's what i remember i remember my mom always reading um and we were always encouraged to read and um so that's it. Really, was all of us reading, and my dad, and I don't really remember much of my mom. But um, and then after, so we'll come back to the Soviet Union. But after that, I went off to college, and this was a big deal. Um, so that was I call it a book desert in the Soviet Union. We just we didn't have enough books. Like there's so a you,
0: so all you were reading was like Newbery books.
1: Yeah, that's all we had, and I had this one other book called Remember Me to Harold Square, which I read like seventeen times because that's just that's all we had.
0: Um, I'm I'm sort of curious because I know what you do now and your love of children's literature and young adult literature. Do you feel like only having access to these books that were sort of award-winning as a, you know, young child? How old were you when you were in the Soviet Union? I was 11 to 14. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like that impacted your reading life long-term in any way?
1: Absolutely. Um, I, even with the problematic issues in some of the early Newberries, they are all spectacularly written. So they are, Mm -hmm. uh, and I think hopefully you got a taste of this with the book we're going to talk about to write for kids is, is just a monumental task because you have to make it understandable, but you can't talk down to them because kids can smell that a mile away and they're done. Mm -hmm. Um, So I do think it gave me a sense of really how to tell a story and what a beautiful story should have in it. I feel like there was always something I've always loved in books. I can read quite sad books as long as there's some kind of human kindness and Newberries often have terrible situations but usually there's somebody who is kind or somebody who is brave and and that's what makes me want to keep going in the world frankly is that we do have the capacity to be like that to each other when we choose to Mm. um i do college was a big turning point too though because um there was a college and grad school there was a table at borders at that time and there was an award-winning table. And so things I had never heard of before, like the Booker Prize and the Orange Prize, and, and those kind of books, all of a sudden I was like, ooh, look at this book. And I, you know, Hajin Waiting was one I read in college. Oh, which yeah. I don't I don't think I would have even known how to look for it if it had not been on this one table. Right. So that was a big thing. And then and then after that, I sort of I just started, I mean, books, especially after the Soviet Union which was, I just broadly call that time, which I realize isn't actually representative of where we were, but books have always just been such a treat to me. Like they're just,
0: mm-hmm.
1: they're, I don't take them for granted. And even in grad school, we had to read so much material that the degree I got was only nine months long. And I, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say, I think we worked pretty much 18 hour days for nine months straight. Like it just, mm-hmm. You know grad school so um but on friday nights we we're all too exhausted to go out like nobody went out on friday night if we did anything we did it saturday night because everybody was just so tired but there was a bookstore that had a trauma section and that's what my degrees in and i would go on friday nights i'm such a nerd and i would pick one book from that section that i didn't have to read but i really wanted to read and that was my friday night treat was to like binge read a book about trauma but anyway so that's I, to me that's what books are though they're like these incredible treats that I don't know you have access to and they're very much my escape
0: as well as my work. I mean one thing you talk about is just here that I totally resonate with is this the idea of the importance of the bookstore the actual Mm -hmm. physical bookstore and I so resonate with this idea that now I worked at a Borders Books in college, so I know how Ooh. Borders works, <laughs> right? Yeah. And when you work at a bookstore, you really come to recognize and understand so much that's out there uh, that you just would not really find or have access to, and you know that's been a really hard thing about 2020 is just that not being able to actually, for example, physically go to Brazos' books. Yes. And just look at what's out or just look like through their sections. You know, that's a unique bookstore. It's independent owned. The, the staff there, I think, does a really good job of picking out things that aren't kind of like, not, they put out the big stuff, but, you know, there's all this other stuff that they expose you to that you wouldn't normally find at a, a big chain bookstore. So that just resonates with me a lot.
1: Well, and that's actually in my little notes I, I wrote, I was thinking about what's really impacted my reading life now. And I realized that what's kept it fresh for me has actually been those bookstores. So even there's Brazos, right? There's also Blue Willow, which is a memorial area and it has a very different collection. And so I find things that uh, I didn't you know, that I didn't find at Brazos, but that I really love, like one of my very favorite books I've read the past two years um, was called Southernmost. Mm. Oh my gosh, I can't think of his last Silas. Uh, I should know his last name.
0: Is that but the it's book about, about the tree?
1: No, it's about, um, it's about a flood in Tennessee and a man who can't stay in the church because he's gay. And it's just, it almost reminded me of Armistad Mopan. It's it's just a fantastic book and lyrical and beautiful. And it's one of those books that, you know, I don't think Brazos had it and Blue Willow had it on a, on a, um, mm. on a book club table. They have a book club table, right? So like different yeah. places. And then, and now that I have the privilege to travel, you know, Birchbark books in Minnesota, <laughs> right? Like they have a, but they have a different set of books. Like I come back with oh. like, you know, some indigenous memoirs or nature books and then I go to grandpa's barn in copper harbor and I come back with books about you know the upper peninsula and Michigan and history and it's just it it just keeps things so interesting and alive to I mean I could list the bookstores all day right there's you know there's so many and they're each um they each have their different curation I guess they're different you know the things they they really care about even their
0: feel. I mean, we've talked because you know you and I. We one of the things that we bonded over so early in life was birch bark books because right, we were there and, <laughs> and I used to live in Minneapolis and and I just oh when you just say birch bark, you know this feeling because you've been there of what it is like to walk into that house. Yes, and the smell. Mm -hmm. and the compactness of that bookstore. And to your point, you know, because it's owned by Louise Erdrich and she's indigenous, it's, it's chucked full of stories and perspectives from indigenous folks. And I just, you know, I was just closing my eyes, just like putting myself in that space and how beautiful it is. Or my friend Holland, who, um, will be on the podcast, um, before this episode, Uh, but she has a bookstore in St. Louis and and they're all just, they're all unique. They're all lovely. They have their own tenor. They're so important. Mm
1: -hmm. I do think, especially like this book, I think is a great example of what I mentioned earlier with Newbery award winners of just skillful, skillful writing. That's one of my favorite things about the book, not the burning of the stories, but I think no. two of the, I think I, there were two of the quotes I sent you. I can't remember which ones I actually sent you. Um, well, one I have was, them here. You have them here. Okay, and actually I actually had them on my computer. I should have opened it up. One was about uh, taking your voice do you want to okay me which page yeah. that was so
0: this is on pages 253 to 254
1: okay thank and you and this is that. actually
0: in one of the the little cunning Ileana it stories yes yes
1: it is mm-hmm. and i have it marked here okay i love that she says so she gets she gets put under a spell where her voice is taken away mm-hmm. and the witch says and she's like um okay but can you reverse the spell and the witch or she writes it down and the witch says oh dear girl don't you know someone can steal your voice, but they can't give it back. If you want it, you'll have to find it yourself. Mm. And I just, I'm, I honestly with I'm still a bit speechless about that sentence. Cause her father, it's not just her voice, right? Her father's taken her stories and there's this idea. I don't know. I just thought that was really powerful that you have to get it back yourself. I don't know. I'm probably not being profound enough about it. It just really resonated with me that, I think sometimes when we're wronged, we look for some kind of external way to fix it. And and there's not always that. You know, some, it just has to come from us. Somehow we have to find the strength mm-hmm. to keep talking.
0: Mm-hmm. And then there's
1: another, there's one that goes with that. Um, Is it the
0: second quote you picked from page
1: 174? Yes. Can I, can I read it? Do you mind?
0: Please read it.
1: So she's found a poem that her uncle wrote under a pen name. Right. Uh, there was no mark of publication. This makes me like tear up. Okay, and it was certain, and it certainly wasn't the kind of writing people wanted to read. It would make them uncomfortable, anxious, afraid. It would make them question our whole way of life. This, this is what writers can do.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I, I thought those two quotes were almost her. Her arc for the whole story a mm-hmm. bit of, it doesn't matter what someone takes from you you i don't even want to oversimplify right she she had to tell her stories again and she realized how power like you said with the story at the end when she tells the story that cannot be told um I, sorry i just i get well, emotional
0: <laughs> i feel like I, the book is about even from the first pages is about what happens when you are not able to tell a story, right? The story mm-hmm. that cannot be told. And that happens in many ways in the book. It, it does happen through the writing. It does happen. But I, I think the part at the end that was powerful for me was that remember when remember when her father burns the book of all of her stories that she's been curating for years. And then she she gets to the country and she's talking to her grandmother and she tells the grandmother about this. I think it's the grandmother. And she, somebody says to her like, well, you just rewrite the stories.
1: Oh, that's the, that actually was the other quote I was thinking of that nobody can take them away, they're part of you. Like, I still remember that one. Like, it doesn't she, isn't that when the grandmother says that she's like, once a story no one can ever take your stories. They are part of you.
0: Right. Nobody can ever take your story. And you know, she feels like she lost it because she lost the written word. So mm-hmm. as a as a big nerd, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's there is this belief that because we write something down, we are if we lose what we've written down, we've lost it, right? Yes. This, this was all the anxiety around the development of the printing press. And, and many of us still do this. I myself do it. This is why I keep all these notebooks because I am I don't write this shit down. I'm not going to remember. Um, but at the end, when she tells the story that cannot be told, what I thought was so powerful about it was that she did it orally. Mm. And, and so for me, part of the book is about this tension not just about finding your voice as a storyteller, finding your voice as a writer and how you go through that process of doing it. That's certainly a theme in the book, but it's also about this tension between oral cultures and written cultures.
1: Mm. Mm-hmm.
0: Because the village is an oral culture. You have old, you, you have the stories of old Constanta. You have you know the fairy tales, right? When she gets there, her grandmother's like, "Oh, haven't you heard these tales about the dragon whose tears oh, yes,
1: yes, turn things yes. into
0: gems, or you know the the witches who come and all that?" And she's never heard any of these stories, right? It's like it's like the city took away her family's ability to understand the oral culture, the oral tradition, and. The story that cannot be told itself is a kind of village developed. Um, I don't know if you call it a folktale or a mythology or whatever, right? The white wolf. Yeah. The white wolf becomes code. I thought it's genius, right? This is exactly how storytelling was. People, people tell stories in order to transmit messages. And the message yes. embedded in the story doesn't necessarily have to have anything to do with the words of what you're saying
1: no no in fact i even rereading the book i'm still not 100 sure what happened on top of the mountain i still don't fully understand the white wolf story but i understand Ah. enough you know I, i understand enough to understand but like but that's part of what i like like i like that I love that thing when she says something in order to believe me, you have to believe one of two impossible things. And I just, I love that line. You have to believe that a child could travel to the mountain by herself at night, or you have to believe that a ghost led me there. And I just, I love it. I just love it. Right. It's, 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 it's magical. And yet I believe it. I didn't need to understand everything to understand the book and to deeply feel the book. If that makes sense.
0: Well, and in fact, I don't want to understand.
1: Hmm. Tell me more.
0: Because okay, at the end, right? I agree with you. That one of the, it, it's because the the way that folk tales and fairy tales. I'm not an expert on this at all, but to me, these stories are meant to help us think about like these larger questions and about the ways that all things are interconnected. Mm. So when she tells the story of the white wolf at the end it it was for me this idea that you know you you see the imagery of her looking over the broken wall of the monastery. Mm. Mm-hmm and she sees the wolf and the wolf is getting closer and her hand is over the fire with the manifesto of all the people who've signed their names against the romanian government and the the visual is just beautiful of course and you feel the cold right you know that it's winter they've had this terrible snowstorm it's freezing cold the people are lined up. She sees the wolf coming. And what I love about it is that at the moment that the wolf actually, you know, ushers in, it's not really a wolf. It's one of the other resistors who, who she has summoned through telling the story. And so for me, it's even about this. I don't know. The whole thing was just so magical because it's like, it makes you think about the connection between the wolves and the humans and the power of the, the protection and the fact that this white wolf story has been going on for hundreds of years, right? It's from an old mm-hmm. ancient priest who ended up deciding to stay and live with the wolves. Um, he's the protector of the village. Yeah. Why and can't all the- we believe that?
1: So I was raised in a, you know, in a very religious household and I'm not religious anymore. Right. But I, I've always, and maybe I'll offend when I say this, I've always thought that I don't understand the universe enough to say what doesn't exist. So to me. Yes. The fact that there could be magic, there could be things we don't understand, there could be energy that we send out or receive. To me, I'm very, and and maybe it is because I grew up and not just in a religious world, but um, a specific, very specific religious world of charismatic Christians where angels and demons were very real things. They were things you prayed against. They were things that you had to, you had to hold demons at bay with angel. I mean, it was a, it was a very real thing. And so I think in some ways that has given me an openness to literature now that I don't like, I don't need it to be a ghost or not be a ghost. You know what I'm saying? Like to me, I'm like, okay, so there's this other world out there we don't understand. And like, you know, I actually thought the first wolf was a wolf and and then it was the resistor. Like I wasn't totally convinced that the first one she saw wasn't a wolf, you know? so And, and sure. I'm right. And I'm happy to be in that space, I guess is what I'm saying. So I think, is that what you're saying about? There's just a lot, we don't, know or understand or
0: part yes it is what I'm saying and I right you can read that scene as maybe it was a real wolf maybe it was like the spirit of a wolf you could even read that right there's a there's there is a sort of element of like you know the force of the wind the nature and the whole thing coming Mm -hmm. through like I can see it she does a really great job of, de- of describing the scene and you feel like you're there, or at least I did. And oh, yes. that's the sign of good writing just in general. Right. What about these stories that Ileana writes, these cunning Ileana stories? This is, I I did enjoy them. I also wondered in the larger tapestry of the book, is it trying to, are those fables and these stories that she's written trying to tell us something about the larger story that's unfolding around those stories?
1: I'm going to be honest, even though I like to have an answer and say, I'm still not sure. I reread the stories. So I read the book right Uh whenever in March or April, and then to get ready for this, I reread the stories first. Mm. And I was like, okay. And then I reread the book with the stories more fresh in my mind. And I still am not a hundred percent sure I needed the stories. Um, Okay. I, I, I'm still, the jury's out. I was curious what you, th- that's why I was, I'm a when you said you like the stories. Cause I, I got a little confused and maybe, like I had moments of like, and maybe I'm too literal. Like, well, who are the three sisters? And who does this represent? And who does that represent? When I think, I think it was her just rewriting her story. And I love that with everyone having a different ending, but it's something I've noticed um, across culture. Some, d- and I don't know if it's cultural or the writer. So um grace lynn writes a lot of books she writes some that are actual traditional taiwanese stories and she has one set of books where the narrative is constantly interrupted by a story from an elder Mm -hmm. Um, and then louise erdrich often does that in her adult books and actually in her kids books too the birchbark house books there'll be a there'll be a story from the past that sort of stops the narrative. So I did wonder if that was just not something I'm used to and that if you're used to it, 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 you know what I'm saying? Like if it was like a, cause I know I don't know all these terms, but I know there's different story structures, right? Like circular and there's like different ways. I'm talking a lot. Tell me what you're thinking.
0: You're not talking a lot actually. (laughs) I need you to talk more so it doesn't sound like it's a whole episode (laughs) of me talking about this great book. Um, I couldn't, So I like the stories as standalone stories. And I guess the way that I position them is as, as what you said, right? Like these are the types of stories she wrote in her great tome, as it's called in the book. And I'm Mm -hmm. really glad the author used the word tome because it's it's (laughs) such a, it's such a delicious word and I wish people would use it more. Um, But then, of course, because we're careful readers, we start to think, well, what is the function of this, right? It's not just an interruption. There's got to be, I always think there's got to be a reason that the author did this. But I can't really decipher it. Um, The stories themselves, when you patch them together, if you were to read them through consecutively, you know, they tell about this this story of these three princesses, Ileana is the youngest and the most cunning. She is able to save her two sisters from these evil princes. She's able to trick the prince that her father betrothed her to so that she doesn't get married. And she does sort of end up at the end being this sort of independent, I don't know, like person, right? She doesn't need a man, basically.
1: Uh, So I I don't, I don't know if
0: that's, I don't know if that's a function of the story. I don't know if she's trying to like tell young girls or young readers, right? Like, you know, girls don't have to be princesses that,
1: Mm -hmm. uh,
0: you know, again, to the gendered theme or women are perfectly capable of living a life without a man. I mean, that's what I wrote in that story about <laughs> the, the, you know, it, Connie Niliana and the sugar princess or something, whatever it was called. Yeah. I wrote, yeah, she doesn't need a man. Mm-mm.
1: And I, it was interesting when I reread those stories, Paul, I, I just, I think part of it was, I don't know if this happened to you, but I mean, this book, like I wanted to know what was happening. So like, I wanted to read these little intermezzos or whatever, but I wanted to keep going. Cause I was like, what's going to happen so, when I reread them, I really saw and I actually started marking because you know how we are with our marking.
0: Uh-huh. I started
1: marking all the references to her dad. And so, I do think it's very much a story about her relationship with her dad. Yes. That the betrayal and, you know, how, but then at the end, she forgives him like she doesn't, well, or she understands him, we should, we can say. Um, I thought that was interesting.
0: Well, and even, you know, like in the gendering themes, you know, we were sort mm-hmm. we were sort of starting to talk about gender and you know, uh, you know, Ileana grows up in the city. Now she's largely raised to, you know, well, clothing comes up, right?
1: Yes, it so when does. She
0: first gets to the to the village and she's like, you know, all these people are all the kids are being mean to me. And I thought it was because I was different, or I I thought it was because I was from the city but then i i realized it was because i didn't wear dresses and then yes. the stories of her and gabby you know like not to gender but like the, they're they're written in a way that you know they seem tomboyish right like yes they play in the fields they catch bugs they they prepare to Fight the soldiers who've come to invade the right, base, right? Like they develop this weapon system and like all this kind of stuff. I just thought, what is she trying to do? What is she trying to say to young people about these weird and ridiculous? Even, even the, even the stories of Cuniniliana. You know, she Cuniniliana is like taking down the men. You know, yes, down <laughs> the like, princes like. Yeah. So yep. I just kept thinking, oh, this is so, wo- it's wonderful. <laughs> it's joy inducing. It's fun to think about. I loved it.
1: Well, well, I'm so pleased. Cause I, I mean, I, I didn't need to pick a book you would like, but I thought it would be a good discussion and you would enjoy it. And I mean, even to, to the gender point, so is just so rare as girls or you know um that we get to have an adventure like when they make those yeah. weapons and the tunnels and they're and they're you know like i'm gonna go this way and i'm gonna climb through a tunnel in the dead of night with a spear and then my friends are gonna loop around the other tunnel and throw rocks at a grown man and knock him out so i can go rescue someone like those are the i feel like boys have gotten to have those adventures in literature forever um but now girls are getting do that right i want to have an adventure i want to although there is another quote i love when she says something about you know it's one thing to be brave in your stories but it's another thing when you have to actually be brave in real life and she's Mm. trying to and i that that really resonated with me in our actual world and
0: her world as well but but um, that's that point that quote that you just said is really important in the story too and it it's really important again why do we read books because we can then try to think about would we be able to be brave like that in real life? I mean, isn't there one point, this is another point that I found so terrifying where she has a gun pointed in her face. Oh, he's
1: shooting at her. Yeah, he is shooting at her and it hits the tree, doesn't it? Right.
0: And And I thought how freaking terrifying to be getting shot at by a soldier A soldier from your own government your own country it's more than an adventure it's it's about yeah bravery and resistance to oppression
1: when you're saying like real stakes so yeah you know what i mean like it's it's and I, i mean yeah i didn't mean to make it sound light by saying adventure but like there's she's got real state i mean her gabby throws the rock so she doesn't get shot i mean it's just very and i of course that that very to me is also you know raised in the culture i was raised in i just think those those references are masterful as well they're really well done right the whole david and goliath gabby is supposed to not be strong and she's you know she, but she actually is the fastest oh. and she takes down the giant with her rocks like it's just there's such whether or not the author meant to do that right i'm
0: I didn't even pick up on it. I'm glad you said it.
1: So I just, I think those things are, I, don't, I just, I think they're beautifully done. I, I'm never sure that authors really do them by accident, unless I guess it's the, like, you know, the collective unconscious, these stories are just in us. there's another theme in this book and maybe that's why I didn't get into the mother too much. Cause this other, these other things were really pulling on me. Mm-hmm. There's a couple instances in the book and I'll um, I've got so many flags. I don't find them. One is the, the mother goes from being a pianist to being a typist. And she has to just type documents oh, yeah. over and over and over. And the dad says, I think the dad says at least we're safe, but it's safe. And I kept thinking, right, I kept thinking what the price of safety is, right? So they also mentioned Mm -hmm. that the grandfather had made it through, what, two world wars and the communist occupation of his country, and he'd made it through safely, right? But at what cost? And I, I just think it's interesting that this, and kind of magical, honestly, that this book happened to be in the bookstore when I needed to think about these things. Oh, yeah. Because I, again, coming back to, I feel like that's the theme of at least the past four years for me is these, these issues coming to a head of, of what is, you know, what am I willing to do to be safe? What can I live with knowing that people who I care about aren't safe? It really struck me at the end of this year when, you know, people kept saying, oh, well, at least we got through, at least we got to the 2020, we got through 2020. And I just thought, no, we didn't like Half a million, almost half a million people didn't get through 2020, and kids are locked in cages, and their parents are probably dead, and and they didn't get through 2020, but I am safe at home. I don't know, it just it I don't have answers to any of that, except that it 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 both allowed me to sit in the space of trying to figure it out and pushed me to not just forget (laughs) about it does
0: that make sense it really makes sense and I do think this this Hmm. question that you asked about what is the you know what is safety at what cost
1: yeah
0: you know and I I did I did keep thinking at the end of the towards the end of the book about this decision that she has to make even the decision to go and save the manifesto yeah. So it's not just the decision to push her father out. Uh, and I wish that I, I wish I could find the quote, but there's, there's some quote in this book someplace where somebody says something to her of like, to Ileana, you know, at, at some point you're, you're always going to have to make a decision.
1: Oh, I mark is, did I not send that one to you? Uh, I don't, and, they, and everything I don't... has a cost.
0: And everything has a cost.
1: Oh, I have it. Just a second. It's it's worth
0: it's worth finding. putting on the thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's really <laughs> oh here yeah, it is on I... page. Would you found it 271? Okay. I know you've been keeping some secrets, my grandfather continued. I won't tell mm. you what to think or how to act. We all have to do what we believe is right. And those are choices no one else can make for you. But know that there are people who love you dearly and know that everything has consequences. Everything has a cost. You did send this to me.
1: I love that. There's another place, the jar. Do you remember the jar? She puts the, the insect in a jar.
0: Oh, Yeah.
1: And she said, well, at least in a jar, you're safe. And it's like, yes, but someone could knock the jar over and it could shatter. And I had a moment of like, is that freedom? Is that, is that the end?
0: Anyway, I, so sorry, go ahead and say what you wanted to do about the well, part, of, part of what I was trying to, you know, the theme of the book, one of the major themes of the book are these choices people make, right? So even when you said safety at what cost, And I know that you don't necessarily relate so much to the mother. And I don't think that the mother is necessarily a major character in the book, but even in the relative safety of her job, it is at her job that she takes the poem from Andre types Mm. it out and sends it abroad to be published in an externally external to Romania publication, which then ends up, Setting off the whole trajectory of what happens in the book, right? And Iliana, remember her mother, her grandmother. I'm sorry, gives her the yellow notebook. Yes. And Iliana is prudent enough to know that she has to copy the words from the manifesto.
1: And then that's how Andre knows it's her, right? She repeats it back to him.
0: Mm-hmm. His own oh, poem. Right. Okay, his own poem, right?
1: But can I say something about the yellow notebook? I don't want to get too off. But, yeah, um, go
0: ahead.
1: When you, when you, at the very beginning, we we're talking about trauma, and 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 mm. I think about when you, when you read a book that's this, this heart pounding and uh, intense. Those moments, like, are where my heart filled back up. When she doesn't know if she can make it in the village, she's so lonely. She misses her mother. All of these things. She's upset with her father. And then her grandmother puts that notebook by mm-hmm. her by, on the table. To me, that was a moment where my heart just refilled. and I thought people can just be kind. And I, so those, to me, are those moments I'm talking about where you're like, okay, I can keep going with this story. There's, there's just enough hope and kindness. And- or with Gabby. Oh, I love Gabby. She, I mean, how many times, right? The wasps, the, the spitting, the-,
0: the... The fact that she has a brace on her leg.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. and you know so there's a disability theme in the story right now when I was reading this book I just kept thinking two things one was I really do not have any understanding of what happened during the fall of the Soviet Union Mm. or what led up to the fall of the Soviet Union I remember from childhood 1989, you know, I, I viscerally remember watching that stuff on TV, but do I know anything about what was going on in all these countries that ended up forming after the fall of the Soviet Union? I do not. Mm. So, so part of it is informational. Uh, the other part is about teaching young people about some really difficult stuff. As I was texting with you last night, I am quite certain that many adults would be uncomfortable with the way certain parts of the Holocaust, for example, are discussed in this book. Mm. And I, wanna, I do wanna talk about that at some point. So I kept thinking, this is a young adult book. How do How does an author a writer, a publisher decide where that line is. Sort of like you were talking about when you talk about your little person.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: How do you decide what's too much? What's too graphic? What's too scary, right? This book is kind of scary. Like yeah, (laughs) oh, oh, absolutely scary stuff. I I was rereading and my
1: heart was still pounding. I was like, right.
0: Yeah. How do you decide that?
1: Well, that's interesting because i one of the great joys of my little person's eight is of having a child this age is i get to read all these books now right especially mm-hmm. i mean i read them anyway because i'm a writer and i feel it's part of my work and my great privilege to have that be part of my work but as a parent i am always reading because my little person does have such it's not just a soft heart but i think that's part of the power of these books you're hitting kids at an age where they see very clearly that something is wrong or someone has been Mm -hmm. wronged or Mm -hmm. and they don't hopefully they haven't been shut down yet enough that that they cry and they get angry and they experience the book in a way that i think a lot of adults and maybe this is too broad a generalization but i think a lot of us have been told to kind of keep it together and there are terrifying physical violence moments in this book Mm, mm. But it doesn't, to me, it doesn't go too far. Like it's, it, it's, it's terrifying and it's awful. But you know, someone's not actually dismembered. Do you know what I mean? They're, well, well, anyway, they're well, spoiler again. I mean, people no, 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 no. Fire, look, yeah.
0: we look. We always tell people that um, that there is going to be spoilers, and I think that you know okay. people need to just. um they need to just be aware of that. But I do think there are some parts of this book that when I was reading it, I was like, this is really heavy for a young person. For example, on page 190, okay, the book is this. very- I feel
1: like I'm in church and you're telling me to look up the verse. I love it, I love it. Okay. Yeah,
0: but like, think about this. Okay, this is the third paragraph. Uh, are I guess we it's are like the fourth, fourth paragraph back down on page I thought yep, I
1: thought we'd be in Odessa okay yep mm-hmm.
0: after the bomb's detonation Odessa was ordered to pay for our losses 100 Jews for every soldier 200 for every officer 5,000 civilians were marched from their seaside homes lined up in long straight rows and shot When I read that, it was, for me, it was like the breath was sucked out of my being to think about a child watching this, hearing about this from her grandfather.
1: So I, okay. Yes. Yes. All of that. Yes, Paul. Yes. (laughs) Like I, I'm, I'm telling you, I reread it and I was like, holy moly, this is like months later rereading and my power, my heart is still pounding. And I guess, to be fair, I'm sorry, there was actual dismembering in this book, but I I, think... I don't think
0: it's bad. I think that no, no. it's really, really an important contribution of the book for me is that you expose these young people to this incredible violence that happened in the Holocaust And like I was saying to you on the text message last night, for me, one of the reasons the book is so important for many reasons, but one specific reason is that it does do a very thorough, historically accurate job of saying, this is what happened. This is how these people were persecuted and murdered, systematically murdered. The, The other scene in the book where that happened for me was the scene where the grandfather is recounting.
1: Oh, the gasoline! Holding, holding. The Sorry, spray I can see hose, your hands. Yeah, yeah
0: holding yeah. the spray hose as the officer pumped the thing and spraying the Jews with gasoline, and then flamethrowers setting them all on fire. Paul, now no one's going to read this book. That's okay. No, they're going <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> to read it because right. we talk about all of the. Look, this is an amazing part of the book to me.
1: I agree. And I, so not to get brass tacks, but this is what I think. So there's an, I almost, I'm almost positive. It's Madeline Lingle who said, if there's something too difficult for adults, write it for children. I have such, it's huh. part of why I, so my whole career has been working with kids and I, yeah I adore them. I just, it, it's amazing to me what they can handle and what they can take at the same time. I think part of the, uh, my dad and I discuss how we don't want to use the word masterful anymore because of the connotation we need some some other word that means just the zenith of great writing right but the story the details of the holocaust are told in a story through another story so there's like another layer of remove for the reader Yes, and at the same time, they're told by her grandfather, who you I I loved, who you love, and I think that's also oh, part so
0: great. <laughs>
1: of, I mean, but I think that's also part of the like the. It's not a sucker punch, but like that he, who you love so much at this point in the book, right, where it's like almost two hundred pages, that he was involved in that, right. So you have to deal with that as well. I just think it's just such great storytelling. To give the reader a bit of distance, but then also challenge them to say, and this character that you adore, yes, he murdered people. And would you do that? And what do you think of that? And do you still love the grandfather? I just think there's so many. And that's actually one of the big questions I want to get to, which I'm not sure if we're allowed to do that yet. But it's, no,
0: just go, just say it. Okay.
1: Okay. <laughs> Is that the thing that really hit me with this book was the things we do to survive. And to, and to be able to sleep with ourselves at night. And I don't think those are always the same thing, but they can be. I think what one person thinks is brave is a war crime to someone else. And I, and I think this reminds, I love that your rhizome is growing. This makes me think of the conversation you had about philosophy. And I just think, right we're giving a book like this gives a beautiful story and it is a beautiful story. Even with the violence, I really
0: think it's a beautiful story. It's not that violent for listeners. Okay. It's actually, (laughs) it's 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 actually a lovely story. Well, and I think, beautiful,
1: yeah, it is. And I think brass tacks again, the, the writer does enough of giving you this really idyllic. She, she gets sent to the countryside. And so she has this really idyllic life and there's goats and there's, beautiful snow and you know there's village life and there's all this beauty to to go with the trauma and I think that gets back to a little bit what I was saying about there are all these moments too of kindness in the village and even kindness with her parents and anyway so to me when you have that balance I can I can hold a lot of grief and a lot of trauma and even violence if I know that people's hearts are still trying to move toward kindness kindness is my word but um I was saying something else, Paul and I think I forgot. It was well, you one of the oh the unanswerable saying... questions. Sorry, the unanswerable questions. We're giving kids these questions that I mean, how do you answer that? What is brave? What is bravery?
0: What is justice? This what is, is exactly justice? this is exactly uh, the Chaufe conversation. I was yes. thinking about this all through the book. Um, I agree with you. The book is so good at raising these questions that are so hard. What, what do you do if your father is trying to give his brother away in order to save you, right? I thought yes. that's relationships mm-hmm. in the book, Christine, is this relationship between Ileana and her uncle Andre. It oh, is yes. so beautiful. He's a poet. Yes. She's a young writer. She loves poetry and art and creativity and imagination, and she literally was willing to die for Uncle Andre.
1: Yeah.
0: And that's what I mean when I say this book is so important, because you have to have these, you have to expose young people, and adults, by the way, to these types of ethical, moral issues that this book raises. What would you do in this situation? And there is not an easy answer. I would say this book, The Story That Cannot Be Told by J. Casper Kramer, is a book that should be read by all adults.
1: I agree. I agree.
0: It is phenomenally constructed. It, it, it brings up incredibly difficult ethical and moral issues. It's an adventure story, it's magic. It's about relationships and families and history and good storytelling and the importance of writing and voice and books and so many family, other things, yeah. family, poverty, uh, community in the village, right? The, the way that people look out for each other. Um,
1: people who are listening, you really uh, should read the book, <laughs> but there's just so much, I don't know. You just think the richness that's lost. And I think that's part of the beauty of this book. When you said, you know, what pulled you into this book? I've read a lot, I should say a lot. I've read a lot, a lot of Eastern Bloc literature um some russian literature like i've tried to read this part of the world because i was there right and i don't know that i've and i'm and i'm sure people will yell that there's like 15 books and please tell me and i'll read them but i don't know that i've read a book about the fall of the romanian government in 1989 comparing the city and the country do you know what I mean like i don't know that that's something i've ever just come across in a book and i you know and i'm the kind of person who who loves like i i love 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 um Jenny Erpenbeck, right, who writes about East Germany. And just what you're saying, that this is such a, it's like a story of the whole world, and yet it's a story of such a specific time and such a specific moment.
0: Christine Thomas Alderman is a writer and educator. She holds a master's degree from Harvard University in Risk and Resilience focusing on children zero through six who have experienced trauma. She also holds a degree in child development and early education from Vanderbilt University. She worked as a classroom teacher, social worker, teacher development provider, and as a volunteer in women's and juvenile detention facilities, supporting decision-making and parent-child literacy connections. She has worked extensively with students who struggle with behavior issues, children from low-income backgrounds, and weather refugees from Hurricane Katrina, Ike, and Rita. She has published over a dozen nonfiction books for children. You can contact Christine via email aldermanct@gmail.com. at gmail.com, follow her on Instagram at Christine Thomas Alderman or on Twitter, at Ms. Alderman, or visit her website, www.ChristineThomasAlderman.com. I'm always open to your comments, suggestions, and insights. Feel free to email me, rhizoreader at gmail.com, or contact me through our Rhizomatic Reader Instagram account, at rhizoreader. You can listen again, Share this conversation and rate our podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. You can find a transcript of this conversation and show notes on the episodes link of our website, www.rizoreader.com. Our theme music is composed by Leo Sokolovsky, copyright free, and available on SoundCloud. All music in today's episode is copyright free and used with appropriate permissions. My name is Keaton, and this has been the Rhizomatic Reader.